As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, now's the time with our best offer ever. Sign up today and you'll pay just £1 a month for the next six months, giving you unrivaled insight and analysis of everything Euro 2020 and taking you well into the new Premier League season two. The Athletic is the only place you can read pieces by award-winning writers like Michael Cox, Rafa Honigstein, Amy Lawrence and Daniel Taylor. And when you subscribe, you'll also get ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts from across its audio network. Head to theathletic.com slash totally and become a subscriber today for six quid until the end of the year. That's theathletic.com slash totally. Good afternoon, passengers. This is a pre-boarding announcement for flight 899. Please have your boarding pass and identification ready. Baku, Sevilla, Amsterdam, Glasgow, München, Sankt Petersburg, Bucharest, Budapest, Copenhagen, Roma, London. It's destination knowledge on this Totally Football Show at the Euros as we fire up part two of our preview. Checking in on France, they're the creme de la creme and now they've added Kareem. Netherlands, Frank de Boer is the orangey manager. We ask a local, aren't you worried? Germany, Spain, North Macedonia, Ukraine and more with all the big stories from 12 more contenders coming up in this Totally Football Show at the Euros in association with Paddy Power. Hello there, listener. Not long now, eh? And we've got another preview show for you. And providing today's Euro samples, we have from France, Julien Laurence. Bonjour. We, uh, a little bit later, we'll be hearing from Raphael Honigstein of Germany. Also, Alvaro Romeo on Spain. Mikhail Jongsba on the Netherlands. And uh, here with us now, uh, Duncan Alexander from the realm of digital post-humanity, who didn't qualify for this tournament, but I know you've got a big interest in it anyway, Duncan. Uh, bonjour, aussi. Yeah, we, we just missed out at the end <laughs> due to a hologram glitch. But, you know, we'll be back. We'll be back. Right. Woo! Let me hear you say woo, Julian. Woohoo! I'm, I'm pumped. I mean, my team will win it, so we know it already. So, you know. Yeah. Oh. Well, that's a bold call. That's it, isn't it? Is the show done? Yeah. Oh, you want me to stay? You still want me to stay? Okay. 
the Euros as an entity, uh, where do you st- are you with those people who actually prefer it to the World Cup? Duncan, no? No, the World okay. Cup's got a, a level of, of uh, cosmopolitanism and, and just different, you know, like it brings the globe together. I know that the Euros is watched all over the world, but, you know, like playing a team from Central America or, or Asia, there's a lot more interest, I think. Um, I find the Euros... The Euros is sort of a tournament of great games rather than great tournaments. You can everyone can pick out four or five classic matches that have been the Euros, but it's hard to really, you know, pinpoint a single tournament that stands out that you know in a way that say France '98 did or or Mexico '1970 or something. Mm, interesting. Well, maybe Greece's campaign in 2004 in Portugal, but that's perhaps more to do with Greece. This this tournament's certainly going to stand out though because of the fact that it's all over the continent. It is such a a different format. And we were mentioning in our first preview show how much that might play into teams' chances. Sides like Hungary, who are going to be playing in front of capacity crowds for two of their home games, not the most fancied of sides, but there could be could be a bit of a wild card factor in there. Yes, definitely. I mean, look at England. I think this is for me. This is a, a tournament in England. England will be on home soil pretty much the whole way if they go if they go fast. That's a huge advantage, even if it's not full stadium for. For England, for example, and, and other countries, I think it's a it's a big help. It's a bit like those Champions League games that we had, where you had to play the home tie on neutral ground, for example. But the second leg was on the home in the home stadium of that team that was supposed to have the second leg. I think it's a bit like that, and I think it's a big advantage to have, and also less travelling for for teams who play in their country, which I think counts too. So it's 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 good. It's good for you if you have some home games. France don't have that advantage, of course. Uh, Jules, should we start off uh, today's second half of previews with their group, Group F, they call it, the Group of Death. It features European Championship holders Portugal, World Cup winners France, Hungary, who were good several decades ago, and Germany, who, well, same really. To kick us off, one of our Euro memories. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Do you know what that was, Jules? Of course, France-Portugal in Marseille at the Velodrome semi-final of the 1984 um, Euros. Jean Tigana, the N'Golo Conte of the 80s, the never-tired Jean Tigana, the father of N'Golo Conte, pretty much. Uh, with an amazing right. run, and then the cross, and then Platini with the finish, and, and a 3-2 win. In the 119th minute against Portugal, taking France through to what was then their first major final, of course, since then. You've won everything. You arrive at this tournament as world champions. Didn't and, oh my word, the tour in a while, did they? But... Fair. Almost everything. That's why we never played it again. You know, We never organised <laughs> it again because we didn't win it. Right. Uh, but you arrive as world champions and you've gone and added Kareem Benzema. Woo! Woo indeed, James. I, I never thought really we would see Karim Benzema again with this shirt, with the national team. And yet, five and a half years later, he he came back. I think he shows the intelligence of Deschamps in a way, but also his pragmatism because Deschamps realised that he would have more chances of winning this competition with Benzema in the team and in the squad than without, uh, which maybe wasn't the case in 2018, for example, where I think the, the unity, the, the harmony in the squad and also the, the talent at disposal was maybe enough for the way they wanted to play. Maybe for this competition, it was a bit different. 
But if you add a Karim Benzema, even at 33, maybe in the best form of his life, to an already World Cup winning squad, as you said, because let's not forget and let's remind everyone that we won the World Cup in 2018, it's a, it's a better team. It's a, best, it's a much mature team, a better team. And I think it's a better squad than we had, the one we had three years ago. Are you going to have a front three of Griezmann, Mbappe and Benzema? That's the plan, my friend. That is the plan. Yeah. I mean, you can forfeit. And Whoever wants to forfeit, they can forfeit before playing us. And to. then behind them, you've got what? Kante and Pogba? Yeah. And then Tolisso, Rabiot, depending on how you want to play. Coman, Dembele, Lemar. Wow. And then the back four that was very solid at the World Cup and won the World Cup in many respects. I mean, I do remember a lot of this chat heading into um, World Cup 2002. You know, on paper, the French uh, team, you know, reigning world and European champions were the, the greatest team ever seen. And it didn't work out that time. But yeah, I mean, hats off. That is a, that is a reasonable squad. So. <laughs> is, the, is the arrival of Benzema in place of the very popular Olivier Giroud, is, that, is there a potential disruption there, Jules? Somebody who hasn't been called in for six years because of... Personality issues, essentially. Yeah, I mean, because of a attempt of blackmailing a, a teammate, which is, I guess, maybe that a sounds bit better. You're right. Issues. Yeah, mm -hmm. but um, the fact that Giroud is in the squad, so had Giroud been dropped and and Benzema literally taking his place in the squad, maybe it would have been the feelings would have been different. The fact mm -hmm. is that Deschamps asks. Uh, some of the players, what they thought of Benzema coming back before he called him back. And the, the response was really positive. I think the, the younger generation, the, uh, the Mbappes, Mbappe grew up watching Karim Benzema play for Real Madrid. Uh, same with Kingsley Coman, for example, and, and others. And then the older generation, the likes of Lloris, even Griezmann played with Benzema with the national team, Pogba as well. So there's really a feeling of... The ones who were there before know him so well. He's, he was part of the team before the leader of that team. He's back. Okay, that's fine. There's, there's nothing special. The younger ones, they see him as like, wow, this is Karim Benzema, the Karim Benzema. We've never played with him. Only ever watched him on television. Sometimes for some of them played against him. And, and I think for them, it's a, it's a big bonus in terms of let's follow the guide, basically. And for Giroud, they... They uh, kissed and made up when they played against each other with Real Madrid and Chelsea this season. They had a chat. Right. Giroud knows that if, if, if France wins these Euros, even if he doesn't play much, Karim Benzema could be a big reason why. So for him, right. if that makes France better and giving him more chances to win it, he goes with it. And like he said last week, they, they can go and celebrate doing a go-kart race. Okay, nice. Benzema, of course, missing a penalty in France's recent friendly against Wales. I, I was groping there, really, Jules, for some potential thing that might go wrong, some complication, something that might be a concern to French supporters. Is there something else, something more realistic, you think, that could hamper Deschamps' side in this? There's always, there's always I mean, potential issues. I mean, don't, don't laugh about it, but we, we are very confident going into this tournament, so much that I think I would have to leave the country for a few weeks if we don't win it, because I've opened my mouth so much <laughs> and so loudly that I, th I suspect that the return um, would be quite heavy on me. But, and maybe, maybe too much. Maybe there's too much confidence. Maybe the balance of the team when you play with Griezmann and Benzema and Mbappé and Pogba in behind won't be good enough when you, when you play against the, the big teams later on in the competition, maybe or even as soon as Germany on Tuesday. I, I don't know, may, maybe defensively um, 
the, the fullbacks who were maybe potentially the, the weakness certainly are right back with Pavard. Maybe that could be something that other team can exploit. There's always potential problems there. But right now, it doesn't look... It looks like this team has pretty much everybody fit, more or less. They're certainly not far from full fitness. Everybody's on good form. Okay, penalties is an issue because they've missed five out of the last eight. Benzema has missed three in a row now, if you count the ones he missed before being dropped by Deschamps. Griezmann the same. Mbappé the same as well. So maybe penalties is a bit of a, of a worry, but... Apart from that, it looks pretty good. I mean, the only other thing, like, like you know, I'm scraping the barrel a little bit, but if you do try and think of bad games and Golo Kante's had, they tend to be more for France than in, in club football. He's kind of the reverse Jordan Pickford in that sense, isn't he? In that he, he reserves his best form often for, for club football. But yeah, I mean, it is looking pretty frightening. But also, I think, you know, it's the group of death, but it's not really, is it? Because with this third place, you know, the fourth the four best third place teams. It's like a kind of group of death that you get in Game of Thrones where someone dies and then, oh, look, magically they've come back to life and they're not really dead. So I think, yeah, that first game is is pivotal because say Germany did pull off a surprise win and Portugal um, beat Hungary in their first game, then it does put France on the back foot. But even in that scenario, you can't see them not picking up, you know, at least three points and that should be enough anyway um, to get through. Jules? At the- I don't completely agree with what Duncan said in the sense that Kante had some really good games with France as well. Just look at the, the World Cup, for example, the semi-final against Belgium. However, if he can play at the level that we've seen him play the last two months with Chelsea, with France during these Euros, I think he would be incredible. I think he would be on his way to winning the Ballon d'Or, especially if France go really far in this tournament. And I think he would deserve it because he's been incredible in 2021. Certainly has. What a midfield lineup the French have. You know what, though? There is an argument that it's not the strongest midfield even in this group, let alone the competition, because the holders, Portugal, have got some players themselves. How about that? Bernardo Silva, Jota, João Felix and Bruno Fernandes. Wow. Portugal, they're the holders of this, the reigning Nations League holders as well. Could they do it again, Duncan? It's strange with Portugal because obviously five years ago they won the tournament, but they weren't that great it felt like the kind of last hit out from a from a team and a generation that had served them served them well um but didn't have much left yet so they come into this tournament as holders but you know i would say with a stronger squad they only won one game in 90 minutes last time round they only um they didn't even win a group game but benefited from our our favorite mechanism to get the four best third place teams through so yeah i mean i think a lot of people have kind of overlooked them not overlooked them, but kind of are underestimating how good they are now. And but it's a better I, squad, you reckon, this time than last time? Yeah, I would say so. They've got more options. Mm. They've got Andre Silva. He is, you know, essentially the sort of striker that Portugal haven't had for a long time. Now, he's not going to get in a team ahead of Ronaldo. No one would, would do that for obvious reasons. But, you know, Ronaldo is now 36. Can he play this amount of games in a in such a short period of time? He didn't even make it to the end of the last tournament. So, you know, it's that strength and depth that I don't think they've had necessarily in previous tournaments. Um, yeah, and I think they won't be perturbed either by by the, this group. I mean, the one thing you can say is they, they very rarely win their opening game. I don't think they've ever won their opening match at Euros, yet they've always got through the group. So mm. they they're kind of they're kind of tournament experts if you like they, they know how to kind of pace themselves over six or seven games and and get the job done brackets except against Greece in 2004 but generally they they know what they're doing so 
Yeah, I mean, I think you could easily see France and Germany drawing that game and Portugal kind of taking advantage and you know, taking control of that group early on. And, and they feel like the sort of team that if that happens, that you know, the confidence they'll have will, will kind of carry them through. So. All right. How many players they've got? Cristiano Ronaldo, we mentioned. Ooh, the Football Writers Player of the Year, Ruben Diaz, of course. Keeping things tight for them at the back. And Pepe. Don't forget Pepe. He's now 38, but we saw in the Champions League this year. Still got it. Jules. The only thing is, Fernando Santos is a, is a very defensive-minded coach. That's how they won in 2016. That's, that's what they do. The problem is that this time, they should have evolved a little bit more towards, OK, how can we use all this incredible attacking potential that we have to find the best way of playing as many as we can of those incredible talents going forward and make our game evolved. And yet they're still playing like they did five years ago. And I do think that the problem is, and we saw it against Spain in that friendly where they drew nil-nil, just did nothing. And a bit in the, in the last few games as well, where they, they don't make enough of the potential that they have going forward because essentially they are a defensive-minded team and they still play that way. And I just don't think it would be enough in this tournament. That is kind of often how you do win tournaments. Though. You know, Spain won the World Cup scoring eight goals in the whole thing. So I think if there's one tournament you can win by not kind of making the most of your attacking uh, talents, it's possibly uh, a World Cup or a Euros. But yeah, I mean, I know what you mean. And France, we, we all love France, don't we? They'll be the most exciting <laughs> team in the group. <laughs> Portugal's schedule is going to be a tough one. Unlike some nations, they won't have the benefit of home crowds. They go Budapest, then Munich, then back to Budapest. The opening game there against a Hungary team whose home support is pretty vocal. I don't know if you, if you recall the scenes before they had that playoff. They needed a playoff to get to the Euros and it came against Iceland and those crowds beforehand uh, doing the Icelandic claps in the in the streets. And then extraordinary, the, the finish of that game, Iceland were a, a goal up with 88 minutes played and four minutes later, it was Hungary that was going through as 2-1 winners. Goal! Goal! Wow. All right, Hungary. Slobosai, who scored the winner there, won't be at this Euros because unfortunately he's injured, which is a big shame because what a player he is. Crowds will be. What do you make of Hungary's chances, Jules? I think they've got no pressure. They would play in front of, of their home fans. They don't often qualify for those big tournaments. Uh, and certainly the fact that Slobosai is not there is a, it's a huge miss because he's... He's more than their best player, really. But but without him, they would be they would be solid. That's why they they will go there and be you know Gulashi in goal and and people like that, Willie Orban at the back. And I think that's 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 the way you can expect them to play. And that's why I think that a team like like Portugal against a, a, a team that doesn't give you much like like Hungary will have to find a way of beating them. Sixty one thousand, one hundred percent capacity, basically at the Pushkas Arena for their two uh, home games there so that's going to be quite a, potentially quite a big factor in the, in their favour yeah, Duncan I mean I think the Pushkar Stadium's in with a shout of winning the Ballon d'Or this year because you think how well it how well it set up the Champions League in the last stages and it it is a bit strange the whole crowd thing in the sense that this tournament was always going to be unusual with teams some teams having home advantage and some not but then you know some teams are going to have more home advantage than others and I think we have found out this season just finished that 
there is such a thing as you know home advantage when you have supporters so yeah there is a real curveball hungry having you know 100% capacity and I think yeah it could again it sets up that opening game of Portugal really really nicely because it if you know if they can pull something off there and don't forget they drew um three all with Portugal in the last Euros one of the games of the tournament actually um, right they actually and, finished yeah. top of that group yeah and historically, they've always been good at kind of hanging in there. I mean, um, I think nine of their 11 goals in European Championship history have come in the second half or extra time. So they, you know, they don't kind of give up. They, um, yeah, it's, I've, I've just just convinced myself that this is the group of death again now. So, yeah. <laughs> you know what? That If France are dangerous and, and Portugal are clearly dangerous and if Hungary are dangerous too, this could mean real problems for Germany. To hear a little bit more about them, let's... Uh, speak now to a man who's a long way from home, and that's Raphael Honigstein. Where are you, Raf? I'm in Portugal, James. Um, I'm spending a bit of time here before I can get into Germany without having to quarantine, so a bit of a pit stop. I see. Well, I hope you're taking the time to enjoy yourself there, because I don't know how much enjoyment you're going to get out of this tournament with Germany. Three <laughs> times European champions... But how, what, what shape are they in as they arrive at this Yogi Love's final tournament? It's difficult to say. They had a, a fairly decent result against Latvia, but as the name suggests, um, difficult to read too much into it. 7-1 um, win, everyone's very happy. But of course, the last three years since the disaster at Russia have not really been marked by consistency and either in terms of results no performances so i think we're still all wondering a little bit what kind of germany will will turn up and i think that includes one or two of the german players themselves uh Lewis has experimented with lots of different formations lots of different personnel choices his latest ploy has been to draft joshua kimmich back into a right wing back role to make space for Cross and Gunnar in the centre, but I think there is a suspicion that against France, those two might not be enough, and we might well see a slightly more defensive formation with a third midfielder and Kimmich coming back in. Right. Those last three years, as you mentioned, very tough for Germany fans. Bottom of the group in the World Cup in Russia, a 6-1 defeat, sorry, 6-0 defeat to Spain in the Nations League, and then in the World Cup qualifying recently, losing at home to North Macedonia. Rafa, and, and for your first game in this new tournament, you've got the world champions France. How worried are you? I'm pretty worried. I think Germany would do well to, to get a draw against France. A win would be, of course, fantastic, but I think it really is the worst possible opening game. You'd want to start with ease into the tournament. Uh, German teams tend to do well when they start well. Uh, when they don't, things can go awry very, very quickly. So, And that's why I think there is a lot of trepidation going into this game. I mean, even by German standards, and we, of course, have invented the concept of angst, um, I think it's particularly uh, uneasy now uh, this year because I think Löw has lost a lot of goodwill. There used to be the presumption, certainly after the World Cup, uh, that he won in Brazil, that somehow German teams would come good, even before that. Um, you know, tournaments 
by and large were successful with Germany going into the final or semi-final. I don't sense that same kind of confidence, certainly not outside the camp, even though everyone inside the camp says they had a wonderful uh, couple of weeks in Austria preparing and the teams coming together. I'm just not 100% sure that it really is coming together. Mm. Well, there is enough talent there in the squad for the team to come good. You've got veterans like Matt Hummels and Thomas Muller coming back in, Serge Nabry, Rudiger, Kai Havertz, Timo Werner, who's form. We'll see what, how that's been uh, affected by the, the season that he's had. It, it's a strong squad, Raf. I think the quality is there individually, which makes it all the more disappointing and frustrating that they haven't been able to play well uh, nor have a consistent starting eleven, or at least an idea of a starting eleven in the last few years. Um, Löw, not all due to his own fault because there were injuries and COVID and all sorts of things, had to make a lot of changes. But within, within all those changes or amidst all those changes, uh, Germany has sort of lost a little bit of, I don't want to say identity, but the idea of what, what they're supposed to be. There was a lot of 3-4-3 three, three being played. Um, a lot of it felt very perfunctory, you know, with, with strange midfield man-to-man marking inspired by Atalanta, but of course not nearly done well enough. Um, there was a bit of counter-attacking football. There was a return to more possession-based football in the recent Euro qualifiers. It's been a sort of a mishmash, uh, and nothing's really stuck. And I think the fact that he felt it necessary to come back to Hummels and, and Müller shows you just how half-baked this transition has been. If everything had gone much more convincingly, then there wouldn't have been that need to, to recall these guys, nor the need, the possible need, to put Kimmich back into a, a right-back or right-full-back position, which again shows you that there are real problems in the side. Mm. Well, Rafa, after the, the trauma of the uh, experience in Russia. Is there part of you that's thinking, well, maybe I won't go to Munich next week. Maybe I'll just stay in this bar overlooking the Atlantic in Portugal <laughs> and sit this one out? It's, I mean, the thought has crossed my mind um, once or twice, uh, especially after I watched a little bit of Germany play uh, the, the previous game against Denmark, where they were once again pretty unconvincing, certainly in the second half. But no, um, I will go to Munich. Um, I'm reliably informed that the four best third place teams get into the last 16 as well. That might be an avenue <laughs> that Germany have to take. Um, even so, I don't think we're going to see Germany getting deep into this competition. I just think there are too many issues. I'd love to be surprised. I'd love to be wrong. But I just don't have the best of feelings about this. Okay. Well, if you finish runner-up in the group, you could just be facing England, of course, because the runner-up of this group faces the the winner of England's group at Wembley in the last 16. Wouldn't that be a thing? Rafa, for now, enjoy yourself there, and we look forward to catching up with you soon. Thank you, James. Bye-bye. Well, that was atmospheric. Duncan, who would you most like England to avoid? Um, Portugal, I think, in the last 16. I think that, as Jules was saying, you know, they're, they're very obdurate, they're... I think they would be the team England would, would find it hardest to break down and you know the pressure would be on England playing at home you know assuming the the potential scenarios etc so Portugal and then obviously France I think would be 
I mean, I think France would, would beat England eight times out of ten. Um, but, again, I think France would probably give England a few more chances than, than Portugal would. I see. All right, well, next up, let's move on uh, to Tales of the Netherlands and others in Group C. Euros are here, and you'd better make the most of them because they only come around every four, well, five years. So if your bookie isn't making you feel special, then maybe it's time to find a new one. Yep, not so much carpe diem as carpadium. Yeah? If the grass is greener on the other side, come and play on it. If your bookie's not giving you the best rewards, switch and you'll get a completely free £5 bet builder on all England's group games. Paddy Power. Pretty much bet builder bets only, men. Two plus legs online exclusive must have previously deposited to avail. T's and C's apply. 18plusbgambleaware.org. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Booted. Nineteen eighty-eight, listener, an MVB being MVP, winning Netherlands their only trophy ever. That was actually Dutch commentary. It sounds just like English, doesn't it? Anyway, these days it's something. If the Netherlands even qualify for a tournament, they missed out on the Euros in twenty sixteen and the World Cup two years later as well. This time though, they are there and in Group C along with Austria, Ukraine, and North Macedonia. All the games are going to be played from this group in Amsterdam and Bucharest. So uh, Netherlands at their first major tournament since 2014. For a laugh, they'll be facing it with one of the worst managers they've ever produced, Frank de Boer. Mikael Jongsma joins us now to discuss that and more. Mikael, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a long wait for the Netherlands. What's the mood like ahead of the tournament? Well, um, yeah, it is a long wait because it's seven years now since uh, the Dutch male team, uh, the women have done a lot better, I must say, but uh, since the male team has, has come up for a big tournament. And last year, the mood was really quite exuberant. People were in uh, good spirits with a, with a good head coach and a, and a solid preparation. But this time it's a bit different. People are quite skeptical going into the Euros this time. Is that because of the change in manager? Yeah, the change of manager hasn't really helped. It's been uh, it's been a bit of a downgrade. Frank de Boer hasn't really been lucky with his last few um, roles in, in management. Um, and uh, people were hoping that he could turn around. And I mean, it's it's still it's still early days. It's only 10 games, 11 games into his tenure. But um, yeah, it, it doesn't really inspire the same freshness that uh, Ronald Koeman uh, seemed to be able to do. Mm. Frank de Boer becoming the first... Netherlands manager to go without a win in any of his first four games, which will sound slightly familiar to uh, Crystal Palace supporters, maybe Inter supporters as well. But he did pick up four <laughs> wins in the next five. That 4-2 defeat to Turkey, 
I guess, has shaken confidence a bit, as has the absence of Virgil van Dijk. How, how does the rest of the squad stack up, do you think, in terms of your, your chances in this group, Michaela? Well, it's it's a bit of a funny squad, this, because, um, I mean, when you look at the individual players, uh, especially in, in, in the centre positions, it's actually not that bad. I mean, when you consider, uh, well, apart from the, well, near extraterrestrial strikers in the uh, Bundesliga and Ligue 1, uh, Memphis and uh, Wout Weghorst are probably two of the best out there. Um, when you look at the midfield, Frenkie de Jong has been, has been really good for Barcelona last year. Uh, Wijnaldum is a confident midfielder. Uh, Rein Gravenberg is one of the biggest talents in that position as well. And when you look at the centre-back positions, I mean, um, Matthijs de Ligt and Daley Blind formed a very, very good pairing at Ajax when they almost uh, reached the finals of the Champions League a couple of seasons ago. Uh, Stefan de Vrij, uh, who won the title with Inter, uh, was the best defender in Serie A last season. So even the absence of Virgil van Dijk from, from a quality point of view should not have deterred the Dutch that much. But in terms of leadership, um, it's a bit of a different story. And uh, when you look at the wing positions, uh, yeah, the Dutch have taken quite a tumble compared to uh, earlier years. Mm. Oh, plus, of course, there's Van der Beek, who will be really fresh and looking forward to finally playing and showing what he's capable of. Eh? Oh. Yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, that, that has been, uh, on a personal level, an absolute drama. But even his inclusion was a bit of uh, a controversy because um, in the press conference when they announced the squad, uh, Fang de Boer said that he was actually fifth on the list of uh, players with the most minutes in this uh, in this squad, and apparently he had looked at his notes uh, a bit wrongly because that were the minutes of Davy Klassen. So uh, yeah, in terms of inspiring confidence as a as a as a coach, that doesn't really help when the 4,000 plus minutes that he claimed actually turned out to be 1,400 minutes. Uh, and Van der Beek has not had a vintage season, it's fair to say that, uh, especially for a player like him. Last season, the Euros would be probably a bit more convenient. But um, mm. yeah, it's, it is a bit of a blow because he, he can fulfill the role that Wijnaldum uh, fulfills for the Netherlands quite well. A player that has a really good vision of how to, how to uh, work space, how to uh, leech onto opportunities created by, by his um, uh, teammates. But in terms of people actually being being that creative in this Netherlands squad, it's not a vintage Netherlands squad because we don't really see any player uh, that has the creativity that you would kind of like to uh, yeah, to have a chance um, at the title. All right. The kind of creativity you associate with this nation above all others. The good news is that it's not, on paper, the toughest of groups, along with uh, Austria, North Macedonia and Ukraine. So there's time there maybe for... De Boer to find his feet and win over a few of the doubters. Yeah, absolutely. And it has been a bit quite interesting because over the last few weeks, he's been uh, exper experimenting with a 5-3-2 formation, a bit akin to what uh, Van Gaal did seven years ago, because the Turkey game, as you said, it has really shaken confidence because people thought that it should be impossible to concede four against, uh, against the Turks. I must say that Turkey is probably a bit of an uh, uh, a black horse in terms of uh, a team that can do well, I, I, I think, especially with uh, Burak Yilmaz being in absolute uh, top form. Um, and even that performance wasn't as bad as it actually uh, uh, did seem. But the adjustment to, uh, to, f to a five defender backline seems to come in, a, uh, come in at a really strange time. And when you look at the team that the Netherlands have, they have some promising uh, fullback options in, uh, in the likes of Owen Weindel, who I suspect will become uh, an absolute star uh, over the next few years, or at least someone that 
goes to a really big club. Uh, Denzel Dumfries on the right has has done a good job for PSV as well, and it's expected to make uh, a new step afterwards. But these are players that are uh, well quite good at the defensive bit of the game, quite good at uh, getting low crosses in or or delivering uh, like pullbacks that kind of game. And to have the kind of surprise element, the 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 extra effect of that that type of player coming up you would expect that you would like to have like maybe a bit of an inside forward type on either flank and uh, for a player like Wout Weghorst he's just kind of used to uh, play a bit wider uh, or at least have some um, some backup from the flanks it's going to be interesting to see how he will fit in into that system and it's very much um, banking on Memphis Depay being the player that he was for Lyon last season I think. Well, the opening game is against Ukraine, who might be your stiffest competition in this group. And that's at the uh, the Johan Cruyff Arena in Amsterdam. What kind of crowds are we going to get there, Mikhail? Uh, I think the current number is 16,000 people are allowed into the stadium. So that's that's well c- quite a lot compared to what we're used to by now. Mm. Um, and... Um, yeah, I mean, it is it is probably the toughest opponent. Um, Ukraine have done quite well in, in against big teams recently as well. Uh, Frank de Boer had a bit of a slip of the tongue this this year, um, as I said, not not the first one really, uh, but where he said uh, where he predicted that they would beat Ukraine three one. So Shevchenko has already shown himself not really impressed, saying, uh, "Well, apparently Frank de Boer knows things that I don't know yet." Uh, but yeah, he has really made sure that they'll be. Uh, very focused and very sharp coming into this game. Brilliant. All right, thanks so much, Mikhail, for joining us and I look forward to speaking to you soon. No problem and uh, have a a good tournament already. (laughs) Mikhail Youngsma. Jules. I mean, I'm not going to tell you what I think of the ball. However, why in, in, in 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 a tournament like this and you allow 26 players for a reason... Why, if you lose Donny van der Beek to injury, which is a blow for them, no problem, why don't you replace him? Don't tell me there's no other player that could come in that squad to make it 26. And in case you've got a problem or in case you need another midfielder, for whatever reason, just replace him. I find that completely crazy and stupid that Luis Enrique only calls 24 out of 26 when he's allowed 26, that the ball can have 26, loses one, best take 25. I just, I don't get it. We'll ask Alvaro Romeo about Spain and their 24-man squad, a little bit later on. But you know what? Mikel was just talking about Ukraine there, and we mentioned them in our first preview show as being, along with Turkey, one of the dark horses. Sasha Gurionov has been looking at Ukraine admiringly. It's quite a common thing for Russians, of course. Uh, let's hear from him now with his breakdown on Sheva's squad. Sasha, tell us all about Andrei Shevchenko's Ukraine. Hi, James. Um, I think it's this is going to be great uh, because for me, Ukraine has perhaps potentially the standout player of the tournament, certainly the player in the best form going into the tournament. As you're aware, I'm talking about Ruslan Malinovsky of Atalanta, uh, Serie A's player of the month for May, Atalanta's uh, player of the month for the last few months, I think. So this is a great footballing side and he's at the heart of that. Um, effectively, I think, ensuring that they don't feel any pain from the loss of Papo Gomez. And this creativity, I think this is what he brings to this Ukraine side. And I think it's it's him and Alexander Zinchenko, who of course plays in midfield for Ukraine and he's the captain. But again, it shows what an absolutely brilliant, intelligent, adaptable player that he is. He's doing obviously a great job for Pep Guardiola at fullback, but he plays across the middle for Ukraine. And those two players 
I think will define the way this teams play. This team plays. Of course, there needs to be a holding midfielder behind them. So that's probably going to be Taras Stepanenko, who's going to be like the yard dog cleaning up after them. And perhaps again, the question is, is with many of these sizes, what's going to happen up front? And they have Roman Yeremchuk, who's been scoring quite a few goals in Belgium for Ghent, not the not the top team, which is a good sign. And obviously, remember that Malinowski came to Italy from Genk in Belgium. So potentially, again, if this lad has a good tournament, he he has got a great move ahead of him. So I think sort of this formation, 4-1-4-1, is probably what they're going to go for. Remember also that uh, Shevchenko isn't on his own. Uh, Mauro Tassotti is uh, one of his assistants. And um, I think the big question for the opening game against Holland, which I think everyone's focused on, is whether... Uh, Ukraine should uh, should go with three centre-backs and especially as Holland are likely to go with two up top three versus two and stuff but you know I'm thinking why don't they just stick to the best formation because Holland under De Boer have been a bit of a mess why don't they just go for it and play their own football why not indeed 2016 Ukraine failed to score a single goal they're now managed by Ukraine's all-time top scorer Andrei Shevchenko are you surprised I, I never figured him for particularly someone who was going to go into an incredible managerial career. Are you surprised at how well he's done, Sasha? Perhaps perhaps not, because there is a thing uh, with guys coming out of Dynamo Kiev. A lot of them seems to be disproportionate. Like, maybe I'm thinking too far back into the Soviet days, and maybe some of them were looked after by being given coaching jobs, effectively, by Dynamo Kiev. But, the but I think the way that... Yeah, I think that this is what I'm going to go with because they've learned from like, the best man. They had to have, I think, a particular type of mindset to play for Lobanovsky. And of course, Shevchenko played for Lobanovsky. So I think you have to understand football quite well and, and, and your functions. So perhaps, maybe they, without even realizing, they think about football in a particular way. Yeah, I mean, you look at Shevchenko, you think, well, great forwards, great managers. Hmm. I mean, but maybe you can look at Mancini, for example. But uh, yeah, he's, he's done a good job. I think a lot of the job was also political, of course. And I think we'll, we'll, we'll get onto that as well. But I think as a figure he hasn't been above criticism but at the same time I think he's this team like they're looking good uh, maybe he's been lucky that Malinovsky is coming in and Zinchenko are just two such gems in his side and that certainly mm-hmm. helps but um, I'm, I'm looking forward to see how this team does okay they're unbeaten in qualifying for Euro 2020 brackets in 21 they've unveiled an interesting new shirt design uh, yeah, so uh, on uh, Monday morning, we found out that the new Ukraine kit uh, has a Ukraine map on the chest, um, and that map shows uh, that Crimea is part of Ukraine. And for some in Russia, apparently that's caused a bit of a problem. I don't really see why. Um, I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that um, Russian ownership of Crimea, shall we say, isn't really recognized by most countries in the world. I think uh, Ukraine itself uh, you know, has a view on this as well, and they, they consider Crimea to be part of Ukrainian territory. And to be honest, though, this, this went through some approvals um, at Uyefa, uh, who found you know nothing political about it. I mean, as far as Ukraine were concerned, you know they're just showing map of their own country. I mean, for me, I think they are definitely making a point, uh, but I think they're making a point about the territorial integrity, which uh, which right. I think is fair enough. Another additional feature of the shirt is that it has a small uh, slogan in it: "Glory to Ukraine, glory to the heroes," uh, which has its roots back probably 100 years ago during you know, the, the aftermath of the um, Russian Revolution, the civil war that embroiled the uh, Russian Empire and the brief Ukrainian independence of the time. It was also associated with nationalist Ukrainian guerrillas uh, during the Second World War. And it came back to the fore in 2014 as all the crises uh, enveloped. And I think it is now the official greeting of the Ukrainian armed forces. I think it became uh, two or three years ago. So obviously the, the war in the East is a huge thing for Ukraine. And again, I think they're, they're making a, a point here that's just to, to remind everyone, I think, 
think as well, as well as you know the a patriotic thing as well. So I think it's quite a lot of messaging on the, on that shirt. Um, and I think in Ukraine's position, I think it's perfectly understandable. Yeah, Russian fans are upset by that Crimea River. I think that's that's the slogan they should have on the back of the the <laughs> shirt. There you go. Uh, it's like France including Calais on their maps, isn't it? It's, it's ours, really. But you know, we'll let them have it for a bit. So. Uh, Jersey, Jules, Jules, you were you were, um, <laughs> shall we say, unenthusiastic about doing any previewing of Ukraine. What's the point? You said, are you have you changed your mind at all now? Not at all. I think Turkey, dark horses every day. Ukraine, yep. I'm not so convinced. Malinovsky has best right. player of the tournament. Good luck with that. Although he had a good second half of the season at Atalanta. And they've got Zabani, who's maybe the best young centre-back in the competition. I give them that. I'm not sure uh, how far they go. they go. They haven't scored with any of their last 67 shots at European Championship finals games, which for me, as a fan of goals, is that's not... Not very good, is it? So. Right. Well, also in this group, Austria and North Macedonia. Austria, who predominantly ply their trade in the Bundesliga. Their form is not great. They had that 2-2 draw with Scotland. They lost 4-0 against Denmark. North Macedonia, a fascinating team. They qualified by winning the lowest of the Nations League sections, uh, beating out Liechtenstein, Gibraltar, Armenia, Kosovo and Georgia to get here. But they did beat Germany, as we mentioned with Rafa earlier, uh, just in this March. This is their first ever major tournament, and thus a first ever major tournament for Goran Pandev. And to put that into context, he's made, he's playing in his first tournament 20 years after his international debut. So the equivalent for England would be playing Kevin Davis at the 2030 World Cup, which you can't rule out at this stage, but it seems unlikely. <laughs> he Pandev, who's 38 at the end of July, is the man who, of course, scored the goal against Georgia in the Nations League that, that got them effectively yeah, incredible figure, Goran Pandev, and still almost identical to how he was 20 years ago. Uh, other notable names in the squad include Elif Elmas of Napoli and Esgan Alioski of Leeds. All right, then. Who's not going to go through from this group? North Mass- You know, I think Austria have a really good squad. They have really good players. I'm not sure about Franco Foda, the manager. Who's- yeah, that's the... Yeah, Austria, they, they had the biggest underperformance on XG in qualification. They're less than the sum of their parts. Um, but, they, as Jules said, they have good players. In, in a tournament, that can sometimes click and you can have, you know, have a good tournament. So, yeah, I would I'd possibly say Austria for second place in this one. All right. Franco Foda, who you mentioned, was a West German international. He tells a funny story. When he made his debut for West Germany, away to Brazil in 1987, people... In the crowd laughed and cheered when he came on. This was in Brazil. He wasn't sure why until he discovered in Bild newspaper that Franco Foda means free sexual intercourse or near enough to make the crowd titter. <laughs> anyway, all right. But he wasn't a good manager when he was at club level with Tom Grass and all of that. So I don't, he hasn't become a good manager, which is a shame because, as we've been saying, this is a very, very talented squad. You know, Alaba and Sabitzer and... Kalajic, the new the, the Stuttgart striker, they did really well in the Bundesliga, who's like 10 foot tall. They've got talent there. I, I, I'm just surprised that they, they're not really actually playing that well. Who's not going through, Jules? No, no I mean, North Macedonia, as much yeah. as I would love them to be the story, they won't be. And I think Austria, Austria could finish second ahead of uh, 
Ukraine. I mean, Frank de Boer is a clown anyway, as I said before. I'm not sure about the Netherlands in this competition. All right, let's move on. Let's make like footballers in Ayanapa and finish off with some groovy action. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman, host of The England Show, brought to you daily throughout Euro 2020. I'll be joined by writers from The Athletic and special guests to bring you unrivaled coverage dedicated to the England team this summer. So for expert insight into Southgate's squad and post-game reaction to all the games, search for The England Show wherever you get your podcasts or via The Athletic app. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. We're sponsored for this episode of The Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Ingerson, Brolin, Dalin, Brolin, brilliant, brilliant goal. And a really finely worked goal that Sweden have thoroughly deserved. Woof, Euro memories again. That's Thomas Brolin. Do you hear that, Duncan? Scoring the winner for Sweden against England in the 1992 UEFA European Championship. Graham Taylor, of course, ashen-faced on the sidelines. Do you remember the headlines mm. the next day? Swedes 2, the Turnips turnip. 1, with a picture of yeah. poor Graham as a kind of root crop. Yeah, a lot, because the turnip motif continued during qualification for USA 94, and I think a lot of people yeah. who've seen that are a bit you know, confused as to why the press chose a turnip. But yeah, that was the origin story. It's the Swedes. Obviously the... Yeah, it was. Um, mm. Yeah, that was a haunting game in English football history. That one so. certainly is. Anyway, Sweden, who woke up uh, quarter finalists three years ago, are back again. Uh, they're in Group E, along with Poland, Slovakia, and Spain. All the games are going to be played in Seville and St. Petersburg, which doesn't help the Swedes very much. They don't have Zlatan, who'd come out of international retirement for the tournament, only to be then ruled out 
with a knee injury. Zlatan, not the only big name to pull out because uh, Juve's youngster Dejan Kulusevski uh, just tested positive, Jules. Yeah, that's right, James. Just today, uh, probably the test, the, the batch of tests this morning. So I don't know if that means he's out completely or if he just have to self-isolate and then do another test in a week or something. And then if that's negative, uh, coming back into the squad, a squad that will have now surely like the Spanish one, have to go itself all in self-isolation. And, and it's another mess, basically. Mm. They do have some other interesting youngsters capable of scoring the goals. Alexander Isak of uh, Real Sociedad who notched up 17 uh, goals in La Liga this season, also 21. And there's uh, Henrik Larsson's son, Jordan, who's had a pretty good season for Spartak Moscow. Yeah, that's right, especially the second half of the year, James. He was fantastic, both in terms of uh, assist and goal scores. And, and with Isak, we knew how, how talented he was. The potential was always there, even when he moved to Dortmund really young. But it's just the maturity that... He's gained a real Sociedad with him and all the good season that they've had and the, the sort of the mindset that he has now in the box. It would have been great to see him with, with Zlatan. Hopefully we can see him with Kuluzewski up front or with Jordan Larson. They also have Marcus Berg in the old guard. They've got a right blend in Sweden with, between the youth and the, the more experienced players. Uh, so it'd be very interesting to see. I think they can cause problems even without Kuluzewski to a lot of teams. Mm. Well, they certainly surprised a lot of people at their last big tournament, 2018. They're not the favourites in this group, though. That honour goes to Spain. And to tell us more about them, here's our favourite, Alvaro Romeo. Hi, Alvaro. Hello, James. How are you? I don't know if Spain is the favourite, though. I'm not too sure about that, even to lead the group. Really? All right. I was just going to say, how, how, how's the build-up going? Once again, it's been a, a difficult pre-tournament for La Roja. <laughs> It's been a terrible uh, build-up. That's why I think that Spain cannot be considered favorite over Sweden right now, uh, because uh, the preparations to the tournament have been very difficult. To start with, we shouldn't forget that Luis Enrique had a hiatus for 18 months because uh, he had to quit for personal reasons, and then he came back uh, in September 2020. Then, um, if Luis Enrique wanted to implement his ideas, the international breaks from October onwards had three games. So Spain didn't have quality time to train. And then uh, Spain had two weeks now to train. And uh, it looked like the controversy about not having cap, any player from Real Madrid was over. The controversy about not having cap, Sergio Ramos was over. And on Sunday, Sergio Busquets tested positive for COVID-19, which meant that uh, all the players are training on their own now waiting for the second negative test so they can go back to training together. Crikey. Well, at least this time you haven't sacked your manager two days before your opening game, is that? <laughs> Although you have called up Kepa. Yeah, we have. I mean, uh, there are six players in the back partner now in the Spanish national team because Luis Enrique, just in case, have to call uh, Kepa, Pablo Fornals, Rodrigo from Leeds United, uh, Carlos Soler, Bryce Mendes, and Albiol, six players who are training in their own bubble, let's call it that way, uh, because, you know, uh, there is the possibility that uh, there are some more positive uh, tests. Um, 
uh, in the Spanish squad, in the Spanish camp. I mean, uh, all of them in the first day tested positive, which was uh, yesterday on Monday, but uh, it could be the case. So those players are there in the back burner. They are training individually. It was a little bit difficult to find some of them. And uh, for example, Spain is playing against uh, Lithuania, a friendly game that was, uh, you know, I think that quite important to prepare the Euro Cup. And uh, the under-21 squad is going to take part in that game and they are going to play it. So as I said before, the preps are really, really inconvenient for the Spanish national team. And uh, that's why I think that all this combined with the fact that if you ask me who is going to start for Spain on uh, Monday, I couldn't give you probably I wouldn't be right in three or four players either because Luis Enrique has been rotating so much that it's impossible to know what's happening uh, or what his uh, game plan is. And also, all together with the fact that there are COVID uh, protocols, that the players are training on their own right now, it's very difficult to trust on this Spanish national team in the short term. Uh, adding to perhaps the confusion, the arrival of Amaric Laporte uh, following his headline-grabbing switch from France to Spain. Uh, imagine, though, that his arrival is pretty welcome, given that Ramos isn't there. <laughs> well, uh, there was, uh, as you as you probably know, uh, a journalist uh, from Madrid. I actually, he's a reporter for Real Madrid for, for Onda Cero, who asked uh, Sergio Ramos in a very... Uh, he, he made a big preamble for his question, talking about nation and anthem, and then he asked uh, Emeric Laporte how Spanish he felt. And I think that the Frenchman uh, and the Spanish man uh, was quite educated, articulated, and he managed to answer the question politely, but he didn't like it. I think that this debate, uh, the sooner it's gone, the better, because, uh, you know, we'd better get used to one thing that if you can't play for a national team, uh, that should be the end of the debate. I mean, Emeric Laporte called the passport on time, and uh, there have been many Spanish players that uh, weren't born in Spain and have defended the national team, like Marco Sena, he was pivotal to win the Euro in 2008 for Spain. So yeah, uh, the thing with Emeric Laporte talking about football now is that he is a left centre-back and he's going to play in Spain with another left centre-back, potentially, like Pau Torres. And uh, this is something that you don't see a lot in football. I don't know how all this mix is going to work for Spain, but as I said before, there are too many questions, too many conundrums, and there are only five or six days to answer all of them. Not sure if anyone's been counting in Spain, but it's been nine years since the national side progressed beyond the last 16 of a major tournament. How crucial is the opening game on Monday in Seville against Sweden, Alvaro? I think that no, I think it's very important because that will set the tone for the re- for the rest of the tournament. Uh, possibly will. Uh, will solve some questions like uh, who plays up front, who is the goalkeeper, because it looks like it's Unai Simon, but there are rumours that Robert Sanchez may have a slight chance as well, the Brighton goalkeeper. Uh, I think that starting strongly is key in this tournament, because at the minute there is a lot of background noise in media, there are doubts with the national team, and uh, anything but a win at home uh, could have probably really bad consequences, or in midterm, until the next game, uh, it will... Um, is put on the controversy much more. Okay. Uh, you, you sound as though you're feeling quite uh, pessimistic, Alvaro. We should just remind ourselves that this is a, a team that recently beat Germany 6-0. So, you know... Yeah, but... I know, yes. And, but then in the in the group stage in March, in the World Cup qualifications, uh, they got seven points out of nine, but they suffered a lot to beat... Uh, Kosovo, or uh, they didn't beat Greece at home. So uh, this is a team that, uh, at the minute, they are sort of uh, score, sort of goals uh, up front. Uh, They have a goalkeeper who has been shaky, like Unai Simon. Uh, Defensive pair 
uh, that haven't played together too much, like Pau Torres and Aymeric Laporte. Probably the best uh, player that Spain has, or one of the best, uh, like Marcos Llorente, who is a hell of a midfielder. Uh, he's playing uh, as a right back, uh, which is not good because Spain is uh, wasting basically all his attacking power. So there are so many questions. No, no, I, I'm not too confident. And let's not forget another thing. Spain didn't, uh, didn't perform well in Russia 2018. Spain didn't perform well in uh, Euro 2016 either, so uh, and they didn't negotiate the the group stage in World Cup 2014. So uh, this is not a team that has offered a, a lot of guarantees lately. Uh, that's why I'm telling you that uh, you know if you look at the French squad, I mean it's impressive what they have up front. Uh, then Germany, they got great midfielders. I look at England and there is something really nice, uh, uh, you know, um, growing there. But in Spain, I think that the only thing that they can trust on genuinely is on a manager who has. Won a Champions League because Luis Enrique is a very good manager and this season, this year alone, Luis Suarez and Lionel Messi independently, they have said that Luis Enrique is the best manager they ever had. So those are the things that you have to trust on. On Luis Enrique being a great manager during the tournament, but he is not having the time to train with the players because there has been a positive. So uh, and he had an 18-month hiatus before the tournament. So yeah, as I said before, uh, I wouldn't put my money on Spain at this stage. All right, Alvaro. Well, well, we'll check in with you as the tournament gets underway to see how things are progressing. For now, though, many thanks. Thanks to you guys. Well, there you go. So Sweden, Alvaro has them ahead of Spain, which you know, I'm not sure if he's being a little bit superstitious there. Poland and Slovakia, though, what are they going to what What are they going to bring, Duncan? Well, the Polish story is obviously Robert Lewandowski who's coming off one of the, the greatest club seasons for an individual player we've ever seen, really, if you put it into context. But his international record in tournaments is nothing to shout about. I actually had a look to try and find the most similar record to Lewandowski. He's had he scored two goals in 11 tournament games from 30 shots. Um, and Martin Peters of England is about roughly the same as that. And not a comparison I've heard too often in in football, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it really does feel, particularly at the ages as well now, that this he really could, you know, turn this group and the tournament um, up if he if he turns up. But as we've seen in previous tournaments, that isn't always the case. So, yeah, yeah. for me, that's that's the real kind of unknown about this group because I think if he if he hits the ground running, then Poland could could easily win the group. But if he doesn't, then you know they could they could even come bottom. So okay, he got no goals whatsoever at the 2018 World Cup. Uh, be interesting to see, as you say, how uh, this time around the things work out. Slovakia, the other team in the group who saw off Republic of Ireland and then Northern Ireland in the playoffs to reach these Euros. Slovakia have actually reached the last 16 in their two previous tournament appearances. How do you feel about Slovakia? Are they worth a preview, Jules? I'm not sure they were. Or just maybe for Marek Ramsek, because at 33, I think this could be the last time we see him really at this kind of tournament and we can enjoy the... The hair, mm. the style, the the swag, everything. Apart from that, the rest again, it's a bit it's a bit similar to what we said earlier about Hungary, for example. They would be very solid. They would be quite defensive and try to to score on set pieces mostly because going forward they don't have as much talent maybe as a as a Czech Republic, for example. So it'd be it'd be more limited. But but you know they would be there with no pressure. Excellent. Well, the tournament gets underway because on Friday in Rome with Italy, Turkey. And uh, our nightly coverage on every game day will begin on Friday as well. Straight off the final whistle, we'll be getting down our thoughts 
and that should be with you a few hours after or probably the next morning uh, for your convenience. I'm quite done with today's show, though. Before we go any further, let's get some odds from Jason Murphy of Paddy Power. As an odds compiler for Paddy Power, a lot of work goes into getting our probabilities right for Euro 2020 and to give you some good insight. In Group C, Netherlands are the only team with home advantage, but we reckon it will be Ukraine who do the most Amster damage. Some may just assume Holland will be as reliably good as that gorgeous jersey, but not in recent times, having missed the last Euros and World Cup. But guess what? The last time they missed back-to-back major tournaments, they won the next one in Euro 88. But Vinny van Gogh, if you can hear me, we don't think it will be happening this time. Reasons being, Netherlands are one of the teams to lose out with the tournament postponement. Van Dijk, the obvious absentee, but also Koeman leaving for the new camp to be replaced by the less impressive Frank de Boer. Ukraine, on the other hand, have benefited from the delay. Shevchenko will have gained a lot tactically in the last 12 months. Ukraine at 9-2 to win the group seems the better value than the Dutch at 2-5. And Ukraine are genuine dark horses in the outright at 90-1. In Group E, Polo Sousa taking over Poland in January was a shock. And based on their three games in March, it is unlikely Sousa's plans for more attack-minded football will have had sufficient time to bet in. Luz Enrique, Spain are rightly favourites to win Group B at 3-10. Their main strength is that they will have no superstars, but quality options for every position. One way to get more entertainment from a bet on Spain is as the highest scoring team at 9-2. They've home advantage in all three group games and have scored 34 goals in their last nine competitive home games. The last group game in particular against a tired and aging Slovakia is a prime opportunity to run up a decent score in the Seville frying pan heat. While Spain are considered greater than the sum of their parts, the same would not be said of Group F contenders Portugal. Disappointing viewing recently against Serbia and Azerbaijan, Fernando Santos has a wealth of attacking talent at his disposal, but will he be able to utilise it? Remember, the reigning champions only won one game in 90 minutes in lifting the trophy in 2016. One thing we Paddy Power odds compilers underestimated was Karim Benzema's return to France, and we have significantly improved our French rating since. I like both Mbappe and Benzema to get a baguette full of goals in this tournament. 9-1 and 12 to run respectfully in the top goalscorer market. And remember, back a top goalscorer with Paddy Power for Euro 2020 and get a free bet for every shot on target in the tournament. But bottom line, it is only the lack of home comforts that will see France not go off clear favourites to win the tournament. And are currently 5-1 to to win it out. If it is not coming home, then Paddy says it is very likely it is going to Paris. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply and when the fun stops, stop. Why not sign up for a subscription with The Athletic if you haven't got one already because you get unrivaled coverage of Euro 2020 in 21. Uh, All the articles, all the podcasts, ad-free and Q&As with writers for £1 a month. £1 a month, that's for your first six months. After that, you probably need need a mortgage or something. But that six months there, boom, unrivaled value. Head to theathletic.com slash totally. Woof. All right, then, Duncan. Nothing stands between us now and kickoff in Rome. What is most getting you hot and bothered? What are you most looking forward to seeing in this crazy month of high-quality international football? I kind of... I just want to see how it unfolds because, I mean, it looked a a slightly outlandish structure when it was first announced. And then obviously with with everything that's happened, um, it could, you know, everyone knows international tournaments really bring countries together 
you know, brackets if you do okay. Um, but you do wonder how this will go, you know, with big crowds in some places and, and not in others. And um, and it will be, you know, obviously, but there's issues with, you know, elements of supporters at various nations as well. So it will be interesting to see how the kind of standard tournament fever kind of progresses as it as it goes on. But I do think it has got the, you know, the, the power to really kind of bring some um, optimism and, and enjoyment to, to people's lives, particularly, you know, even the weather's got nice and everything. So it's, um yeah, I was kind of, it's been such a long season, I was slightly not not looking forward to it, but I was kind of just not thinking about the Euros too much. But I think mm. the last week, I think everyone can really feel that kind of tournament um, fever rising. So. Yeah, particularly Jules. You can, Jules, although you think we don't even need to hold it. We could just give the, the trophy to France. <laughs> we can go home now. Um, no, I think I think the the good things, if there's a good thing about the fact that it was postponed for a year, is that we will get to see Karim Benzema and he would not have been, been there a year ago. We will see Phil Foden, who probably would not have made it or maybe not even in that kind of form uh, a year ago as well. And th- there's other players like that, which I think makes it even more exciting. And... And we had Wales in 2016 uh, going to the semi-final. Who would be the Wales of 2021 or 2020, whatever? I think Turkey, as we said, could be good. Sweden as well. So I think it'd be, it'd be apart from the French, a very open tournament. Brilliant. All right. Well, Friday night then, Italy taking on Turkey kicks it off and we will be with you the next morning with the first of our daily shows. Do hope you'll be joining us throughout the tournament, listener. For now, uh, many thanks for being with us for this preview, uh, this richly educational experience in the company of Julian Laurence and Duncan Alexander and all of our friends in far-flung corners of the continent. Producer Charlie is ever with the sterling work to bring this to your ears. Thank you, guys. We'll be back soon. For now, though, from all of us here, it's adieu. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Head to theathletic.com slash totally to find out all the latest subscription offers. The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.